podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Now, at the World Championship earlier this year, myself, the journalist Hector Nunns and Alan McManus were asked by World Snooker to rank the 10 greatest players of all time, and you can find it on YouTube. And at the time I said, you know, this is uh, an interesting argument for all snooker fans, but it's a bit of a pub debate. So I thought, well, why not go to the pub to debate it? And that's exactly what I did in the company of Neil Folds. So we're in the pub. I'm not going to say where we are because I don't want it to be like Abbey Road. People turning up and doing whatever. I don't know what exactly they would do, but um, it's. Uh, I hope you can hear us. That's the, otherwise, this would just be futile. Um, I'm not going to ask how many drinks you've had, Neil. I've had one, but you don't have to answer. Okay, I won't answer then. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so when we did this for myself, Hector and Alan did this for World Snooker, and they gave us 20 names and we had to pick the top 10 greatest. So we had a bit of leeway. Obviously, there were a few names that maybe some people thought should have been on the list but weren't. The way I'm going to do this is I'm going to cut to the chase and choose three names. Okay. But before we do that, I think that the, probably the most important thing to say is what do we mean by the greatest? Because the definition is, is everything. And to me, the number one thing is about achievements and what you've won. And in any particular era, obviously, there have been different numbers of tournaments at different stages, different amounts of players, but who has dominated each era? And also what you brought to the sport outside of that. And that's why I think we need to explain maybe the players I've left out. So obviously Joe Davis was the first world snooker champion. He was world snooker champion for 20 years. He ran the game effectively. He was the administrator. He introduced the world professional championship. And for that, you know, he gets a lot of points uh, in, in the greatest stakes. Later on, Alex Higgins, you know, no one had ever seen anything like him, the way he played. And he brought extraordinary attention to snooker. He helped bring in sponsorship and broadcasters in the 1970s. But also in the 1970s, he wasn't the best player. Ray Reardon was. Ray Reardon won six world titles. Um, so I guess he would, in terms of achievement, be ahead of Alex Higgins. And later on, John Higgins, still going strong, of course, at the moment. But I've left him out because he wasn't... He hasn't achieved as much as Ronnie O'Sullivan in terms of pure titles, you know, world titles, triple crowns, ranking titles, all the rest of it. So I had to cull uh, a few great names to get to, to my three, which are Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry and Ronnie O'Sullivan. I think it's also important to say we're not just talking about talent. If it was just the best players, then like Tony Drago would be on the list as natural talent. Uh, it's, it's about more than just playing, although that's obviously an important thing. It's about what, what they've represented for the sport as a whole. What, uh, Rob Milkins brought up an interesting point when we did the, the World Snooker thing. Paul Hunter wasn't on the 20 that we were given. And obviously Paul is a, quite a difficult case to discuss because his career, as we know, was very tragically cut short. <clears throat> Extraordinary talent, three masters. I'm sure he would have gone to win a lot more, but obviously we, had to, we could only, well, we could only go with the names we've got, but also, you know, we'll never know what he would have won. He, he's a special case, but I think it's important to, to, to mention him as well. But we're going to start with, as I say, Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan. And actually between them, they basically dominated the game for 40 years. You know, Steve won his first UK title in 1980, dominated the 80s. Stephen Hendry dominated the 90s. Ronnie O'Sullivan hasn't won every title, obviously, in the last 20 years, but he's been the dominant figure of that period. So these three players are the three we're going to look at. You played them all at various stages, Neil. Obviously, uh, when you turned pro, Steve was already established as the man, wasn't he? What made him the man, do you think? Well, he, he, he was ahead of his time, I think, as a player. Um, he was very driven as a person off the table. Uh, what he could do on the table was we all knew about, really. He was um, 
considerably better than all the people around him at the time. He became a multiple world champion. But I think with Steve, I mean, I, I was with Matram at the time with Barry, and off the table you could see what he was. He was someone that was only interested in winning snooker matches. We would you know, travel. My, one of my first trips to Hong Kong with Matram, he would be practicing all day. I mean, six, seven hours playing the same shot for two or three hours. I don't know if he was doing it to show everyone how, how good he was or what, but he, you know, he was a you know, serial winner. He won everything. It was almost an occasion when he lost in snooker that someone, most tournaments you thought he would win, and if someone beat him, say, okay, well, that, Steve's not going to win this one. He's good, somebody else is going to win it. He wasn't a great loser. I think that, that applies actually certainly to Steve Hendry, who we're going to speak about. You know, when they lost matches, they'd probably spend the next day or two in bed, you know, just sulking. And that's why they were such great winners. But Steve was a, a great player. I think the thing with Steve, he, he started off a potter, a scorer. His safety was obviously good at the time when he first turned professional and won his first world title. But over the years, he became someone that um, changed his game, cultivated his game, became somebody who had a safety game, a tactical game, because he realised he had to grow with the times. And I think that's important to mention because he was still going strong into his 50s. And I think great longevity. But he was a very different player at that point to the, the Steve Davis who first came along, who seemed to knock in a lot of long pots. You know, he's a great long potter. He had quite a faster cue action than he had later on in his career. But also, he kept his distance from the other players as well. You know, he, he knew he was great, and then I think he knew he was the best. And he wasn't prepared to let anyone else in on his world. I think that's part of being a champion, you know, single-mindedness, appetite for winning, winning something, then winning again and again and again. He was the first player I knew to do that. And, um, you know, at the time, he was driving around in a car that wasn't wasn't worth fortunes. You know, he had a... You know, he kind of did an MOT every th every year. It was over three years old. Other players who didn't have the same success didn't have that kind of... Um, they had very flashy cars. But with Steve, he was all about winning snooker matches. That really was his life at the time. And I have a, a huge amount of respect for Steve. I was on the wrong end of a lot of matches with him. Of course, I got to the final of the UK Championship and played him. And I was playing the snooker of my life at the time. And he strangled me over two days. And to me, Steve is unquestionably one of the all-time great players and just just the, 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 the aura around him and the way that he played and and the fact that he was incredibly difficult to beat and, and, and every day he'd come out well prepared and professional you know he, there was never a time when he would be slap, sloppy slapdash anything like that he was you know, a great great player on the table and a great man off the table well you've raised a couple of things there that I, I want to look at because um Steve now obviously does the BBC and he's got you know he's got an album out and he does all that stuff. Very approachable actually now, you can go have a chat with him. But from what you were saying, it sounds like at the top he sort of separated himself from the other players. Did you sort of get to know him as a person or was that part of why he was sort of so difficult to play is that he was he did sort of keep himself to himself? Yeah, he kept himself to himself all right and, and as time went on that changed, they become more outgoing and um, you know he he he's got a great sense of humour, Steve, but but in the early days, he wanted to stamp his authority on the game, and I think he did that very well. It's pretty obvious that he was a top player, but he wouldn't have been the only one that at that point would have been looked on as if he was going to be you know, a great player. But there was something about the way he conducted himself and the way that he... Um, uh, I don't know. As I say, it was just horrible playing, Steve, because you knew you were in for the battle of your life. If he was playing well, he'd probably beat you, and, and if he wasn't, he'd find a way of beating you. So he had, he had everything, really, and... You know, he was the first player I ever experienced who had that side of his game. 
you mentioned you played him in the UK final, and that was 1986. And I have, I have to say, I think the UK Championship was bigger then than it is now. Obviously, there's a lot more tournaments now, and the, the format has been shortened. Back then, it was a two-day final. It was the second biggest tournament. What was it like walking out to play him? You were, at the time, you were playing probably your best snook of your life. You just won a, a big tournament. But you're playing Steve Davis. Was it a factor, the fact you were playing him in the UK final, do you think? I think it was. I'd beaten John Parrott easily in the semi-final, but playing him, uh, I think I went in front early on. But I think over the two days, I, I, I was reminded, if I'd forgotten briefly, because I was playing so well, that he, he was a, a, a very tough man to beat. You were playing a lot of shots from under the bulk cushion, and he was scoring heavily. I don't, you know, if you look back in the history, he probably wasn't playing snooker to the level you see now. But the fact is, you know, he was... A, he had something over you. He, he had a, an all-round game that no one really at the time could play. Um, obviously, he's had his moments. Interestingly, I think the UK Championship is quite an important yardstick. You know, you always look at the world title, but those matches he had with Stephen Hendry, which I know you might speak about with Hendry's coming through, 1990 when um, Stephen Beeson, by the odd frame, was maybe a turning point in all of that. And I think the it was only 1993 that the... The final of the UK became a one-day final. That was the year when Ronnie won it, actually, yeah, wasn't it, when he yeah, beat Stephen? Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, in the early days, it was um, a, a big tournament, just like the World Championship, very difficult. Uh, put it this way, in a final of, of two over two days, the best player was going to win, and, and he was invariably the best player. I think a pub quiz has actually started, but well, that's yeah, fine. Sorry. We're in a pub, so, you know, that's, that's, that, that's inevitable, I suppose. Um, I guess, like, his father, Bill, was a, a very important influence, wasn't he? And, and it was interesting that Steve, like, Bill passed away, Steve retired. Um, he obviously instilled, I think, a lot of discipline into him. And they, they followed the, they had, I think, a Joe Davis coaching book, which they followed. Um, and he was a sort of ever-present. That seemed something of a motivator, not just winning, because winning is great, but also that relationship was key, wasn't it? It was, and you know, Bill was um, not a particularly good player. I think he would have been a, a bit, you know, league player. He was never a top player, but you know, Steve believed in him, trusted him, and Bill knew Steve, didn't he? That's the point. He knew him psychologically. He knew him as a person. He knew the game, but he wasn't a player himself of any great distinction. But yes, that they worked as a great team, and Bill kept him on the straight and narrow as well. Same as my dad did with me. You know, when I was younger, my dad used to come around with me, so he kept him doing the right things and thinking the right things and keeping away from the problems that you can have when you've got lots of spare time as a player but so he played a big part in it and it was as you said I think you rightly said when Bill passed away almost immediately Steve felt that his time in snooker was done so there's a link there I think I think you beat him at the Masters one year I beat him actually beat, like? well uh, no I beat him two years running right. uh, um, actually which was amazing because it was. Very, I can remember all the times I beat Steve because it didn't happen very often. <laughs> the times he beat me, some of them have just gone away. But I beat him two years running. One year I was actually four. It was only best of nines then. I beat four two down and beat him. And I beat him another year uh, there. I don't I honestly think that Steve particularly liked the Masters. He won it yeah. three times, which were like his, you know, brilliance and <coughs> domination was quite a low yeah. return, isn't it? I think, don't think John Higgins likes it very much, but. Well, Steve, well, Steve, of course, is a Londoner, yeah. and he would quite often, because of the nature of the sort of British sporting public, get booed. Yeah. Particularly if he played Alex Higgins, he played Alex Higgins famously one year, yes. and you know he was on low, on home turf and got booed, which cannot be nice. No, and I think he only got booed because he was such a prolific winner at the time, and you know what the British public is like without going into all the old cliches. The fact is, they wanted someone else to win, and, and they wanted Alex to. I was I was at the um, conversation of the night that. Uh, Alex beats him and you're right at 4-4 they both went out 
when Steve came back, he was booed, which actually, when you're looking back, it's actually disgraceful that yeah. he was booed. <laughs> People can pay their money, they can do what they like, really, can't they? But it didn't seem just. There was no reason for it. Not that Alex didn't deserve to win, but um, Steve didn't really deserve to be booed. He'd done nothing really to warrant that. Yeah. And the thing is, when he started to lose, he became a national treasure. Yeah. Anyway, so he, he's, he, at one point, he looked like he would never sort of fall off his perch, but then Stephen Hendry came along and Hendry is interesting because he played a different game I think today because he was far more attacking went for everything but he had the same mindset which I think he'd learned from Steve the, the idea that you separate yourself and you have to believe yourself that you're the best you have to literally believe it in your soul and you have to act like you are yeah, I, I, Stephen, um, I think he won the UK first win in, in 89, but the, the 1990 final was the one that, which he won by the odd frame, where Steve chucked everything he had at him, and and Stephen still beat him. There was um, a couple of extraordinary frames. Stephen was a youngster, he had all the shots, he was fearless, he was... Um, I think he broke Steve's heart, really, with some of the pots he knocked in. And that felt like a, a turning point in the game. Yeah. Now, Steve didn't, didn't have the, the same success after that, did he? Yeah, no. In the UK, I don't yeah. think, after that at yeah. all. But, yeah, and um, that, that was a big turning point you know, in the sport. It was a wonderful match, looking back. I can remember certain shots from it now. But it was the young pretender against you know, the great established champion. And, and that was definitely um, sort of a groundbreaking moment in snooker when Stephen came through. Uh, you know, and Stephen was a, a, an equally single-minded player, but a, a, a different sort of competitor. He seemed to, to sort of take all the caution out of the game, didn't he? He came along and just kind of, rather than... And, and, you know, players made big breaks in those days, of course they did, but the nature of the game was a little bit more cautious. Whereas Hendry, and that was regarded as a skill, you know, you manipulate the balls and all that stuff. He just came in, long red, take it on, and invariably knock it in, and... and in that way, did change the game for future generations as well. He did, and people were speaking about him very highly as a junior player. I remember he won the Star of the Future at the Pontins. He must have been 13 or 14, I don't know. I hadn't seen much of him then, but when he turned professional, my first memory, and I'm sorry if I've mentioned it before, but I was playing in the Mercantile Classic as an established player, and I had to play either Stephen Hendry or Silvino Francisco. And Stephen Hendry had beaten him, 16-year-old. People were saying he'd turned professional too too young not ready and I thought well, that's handy I'm not playing like Silvino who's an established player and Stephen was you know, just an incredible talent then. I didn't know it at the time he was um, something special but it took him a couple of years to really take that forward and I think he lost in the UK Championship to Obi Agrawal from yeah. India I and mean, that was like a pretty average result really at the time so there was glimpses of it but the improvement over the next year or two was quite incredible I um, helped Ken Doherty with his autobiography and he tells a story about meeting Hendry at Pontins, what you just mentioned. And he said, um, quite interesting, he said uh, he said he, he was only obviously young, he was the same age as Ken really. He said he walked around with his nose in the air thinking he was the best. And of course the reason he did that was because he was. Um, but it's interesting that like he had that, again, that Davis attitude that yeah, the, it's the belief, I am the best. There's no apology for it. I think I can beat you all. Yeah. But that's where does that come from? I don't know. Is that is that background or is that just some something that he's kind of found on the you know, playing in junior tournaments? I don't know. I don't know, but he did always have that. Kenny's absolutely right because I think when he first came through, and you would people were trying to get to the bottom of him, and I would go up and speak to him. I wouldn't get a great deal back, I have to say, mm. of him. He was quite difficult to, um, to to speak to, and of course now I, I get Stephen is is great fun actually. He's, He's a tremendous sense of humour, but none of that was evident then. <laughs> First time I ever played him, he's, 
after we played, his, I, I, I said good things about him. And I remember his mother wrote a, a letter to me and said, oh, thank you for being so kind to Stephen. You know, it's not been easy for him. Not everyone said he would come through. Um, it was, which I never forget that. It was kind of very nice of her. So uh, even though Stephen didn't say very much at the time, his mother was very, um, you know, uh, uh, happy to speak about things, you know. And uh, listen, he, he, there's, there was a spell where he was virtually unbeatable. Um, through his 20s an extraordinary run wasn't it because that's really where it all took place yeah you know, you know after 30 he didn't win a great deal did he but you know from between the ages of 20 and 30 he was just an astonishing player do you think he uh, forced people to change the way they played I mean a lot of the people who were playing had sort of come up in that Davis era where maybe a little bit more safety minded obviously Jimmy White had played the attacking game uh, but Henry sort of brought that on. Is that was that a sort of sea change for everyone else? Okay, we've got to actually change the way we play. I, th- I think that's right. Yeah, I think he did change the way the game was played. Interestingly, when Stephen first turned professional, he idolised Jimmy White a lot to the point where it was almost unhealthy. And, and Stephen's manager was not very happy with the way that he seemed to be to want to spend time with Jimmy, and he wanted to be with him, and he just as if he was he had stars in his eyes, and that was quickly knocked out of him. And, and in the end, of course, he was <laughs> Jimmy White's. Yeah, sort of nemesis <laughs> for many years um, but he was very single minded single mindedness that Steve had as well I must, I must say that you know, really all he wanted to do was win he wasn't interested in anything else he wanted, wasn't interested in, in taking a backward step with his game he was all attack he was the best scorer if he was playing badly and it went to a decider you could, you could bet your, almost your, your last five pound in your pocket that he would raise his game the amount of matches he won over his career where you know, he can't always play well, but he would make a century in the decider. It happened a lot with him. And, you know, he, he had that look in his eye where he was um, just a natural born winner, and it happened for too long. And as I say, it, to beat him was quite a thing. I mean, Steve James beat him, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, the year after he won the first world title. It was a mi- massive shock, but of course, I guess the Crucible curse even got Stephen in the end. But, you know, aside from that, you know, he, he won his first five Masters, he won all those runs of world championships. You know, he, he was regular winner of the UK Championship. So he did the lot and he did it again and again and again. And a sign of greatness is to win something and just keep winning it and having the appetite to win it and not be affected, I think, in your life. I mean, obviously, money came his way, but it wasn't really about the money. It was about winning and winning again. And that, in any sport, that seems to be the sign of greatness. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is of the three players we're discussing, in terms of all titles won, Steve Davis actually has won more than the other two. Now, obviously, Ronnie's still going. But and, and obviously some of the ones Steve won were effectively exhibition events, but he still won them. But, and I think one of the reasons for that is that, Hen- unlike Steve, who carried on playing for a long time, Hendry didn't change his game at all. He still wanted to be the Stephen Hendry of the 90s, you know, 20 years on. And that effectively led him to retire, didn't it? He didn't want to compromise. And if he had have done, maybe he would still be going now. And who's to say he wouldn't have still have won a few things? Well, that's right. And, and really, I think that was his weakness, you know. And as I say, I'll say that as a friend. And, and I think he he was he refused to change his game, refused to do what Steve did. And in some ways, Ronnie O'Sullivan <coughs> has done that sometimes you just can't put all the balls all the time. And he was determined to keep going on that way and just keep playing his shots. As I say, it was almost he saw it as taking a backward step was a, you know, a sign that he was weak. Well, really, you know, anyone that you were coaching at snooker now, you'd say, well, look, it's not negative to play safe sometimes. It's a positive. It can be negative to keep going for balls as if you can only win one way. Now, obviously, that doesn't apply to Stephen, but, you know, he, you're right. He could have been winning. Even when he retired, he was playing good snooker. But he refused 
uh, he, he didn't win a lot of frames on the colours. He stopped, you know, players were beating him in in in, in scrappy frames, and I think that was a common as a commentator, that was a common thing you'd say. Well, you know, this frame's gone at the colours. Uh, Stephen doesn't win many of those, and he said that all the time, and it was true. But he was still making big breaks. He was still making one four sevens, but there was a, almost he was almost in denial that he had to change his game, and uh, and that's the only reason he didn't win in his to his thirties, I would say. Yeah. Okay, so. 1985 World Final, the most famous match ever played. Most people seem to be supporting Dennis for reasons we've already mentioned about the underdog and Steve's won it all, all these other years and whatever. But there's a nine-year-old watching called Ronnie O'Sullivan who's a big Steve Davis fan and he's already a very promising player and of course he goes on to be the great player that, that we know today. And it's interesting that in a way we don't think of Ronnie's character as being that sort of single-minded like Davis and Hendry but he clearly associates with winners and that potentially is why he's obviously won so much himself. Yeah, I mean, to talk about Ronnie, it's almost difficult because I think people said that you'll never see another Hendry. Uh, you probably said that about Davis, or people did. But in Ronnie, it was different, really, again, because you know, his talent was very apparent. I played him first age 12 when he, when he was age 12, and he qualified in the, the Pontins Open. I was a, the, a, one of the invited professionals. And... Well, I mean, to, to, to be 12 years of age and be better than almost all the amateurs that were around at the time, it doesn't even bear thinking about. And I saw him again, actually, next, two years later, in uh, 1990, maybe he was 15 then, when he was more thick-set and he was playing in uh, that that, um, that, world, that Mitre World Series yeah. where he played the juniors. That's where John Higgins and um, Mark Williams came through. And he yeah. was you know, a different proposition altogether. And when he turned professional and won all those matches in a row what he was doing to players then some of them were good some of them were not very good but he was just light years ahead of what he was playing so he was 16 years of age but he, he, only in age you know only on his birth certificate as far as a player was concerned he was just he was so much better than the people he was playing against and really he was probably a top 32 player then which is quite saying something at that age maybe even a top 16 player You've never known a precocious talent like it but he's not the same character, is he? Because Davis and Hendry, like you say, their life was snooker, and it was all about snooker and winning. Whereas Ronnie, we look, we know the sort of soap opera that, that's gone on over the years. Uh, he's not been, it's not been all about snooker, but he's still achieved everything that he's achieved. So, and also the other thing, of course, is that he he doesn't get booed at tournaments. Like he is not only you know the great figure of the last two decades, but he's also the most popular. Whereas they. They were the greatest of their time, but they weren't necessarily as popular as Jimmy or Alex or, or so on. So it's a bit of a heady mix, isn't it, really, with him? It's, it's different to the other two, I think. Yeah, I think for a while he was a bit of a cult figure because we knew what, what talent he had, but he wasn't winning that much. It took him a while to win his first world title, didn't it, as yeah. we know. Um, and then he had that little dip where about 2010 people were saying he might never be another world champion, and then, of course, he won couple of times since then and then now he's had this extraordinary run where he wins just about all the tournaments on ITV he wins yeah, all yeah. of those you know all that, that series of events the, you know the champion of champions he's, he's basically owned he's only been beaten a couple of times in all the years he didn't play in it one year um, and, and all of that uh, Coral series of last year and the year before what, what's made him into the great player and I thought for, he wouldn't figure in, in your top three of all time until probably about seven or eight years ago when you realise that he's actually changed his game now. You know, I think Ray Reardon helped him for a while with his safety. He's got an all-round game. He can play safe when he wants to. 
he's still a wonderful brake builder. He's an artist, actually, on the snooker table. And now here he is. He's, he's 44 in December, aren't he? And he's still winning and still playing well. He's, he's won in Shanghai this season. And the story is not over. That's the yeah. point. It's still going. Much older and more effectively than Stephen by a mile. And Steve was Steve Davis was playing well at the same age, but nothing like what we're seeing. I mean, he's still he's still probably the best player in the world now. I know Judd Trump is doing particularly well right now, but you know, it, I don't know when the story's going to end. But it hasn't ended yet. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like you say, he's 43. That was the age Andrew was when he retired. Steve Davis won the Masters when he was 39, but it was kind of it was regarded as you know this old this old bloke has suddenly come back to form sort of thing whereas actually you know Ronnie was world number one a couple of months ago um, and that's I think how why he and we'll talk a minute in a minute about who we think is the greatest of the three but I think the great claim he's got is his longevity like you say that we don't know where the story's going to end but I guess the one thing you could argue that counts against him is the world championship now he's won it five times which is amazing but since 2014 we lost to Selby he's not even been in the one table there's something gone wrong at the Crucible maybe in recent times and if he's going to threaten Hendry's record he would need to be winning the World Championship in his late 40s which even for him seems tough it does seem tough but as I say there was a spell where we didn't think he'd win it again right now I don't think Ronnie will win the world title again I think he'll win almost everything else in the meantime I'm sure that he starts almost favourite to win them all but when he played James Cahill last year I was working for Eurosport and after the first session the score was 5-4 and he, would, he played a few shots which I didn't understand he played a, a cross double in one of the late frames and I thought well come on use your experience against I mean, he, James Cahill was called an amateur player but he wasn't really he was, a, he was better than that he was a, he'd beaten a lot of big players but I think Ronnie has now got a little bit of a blockage about playing at the Crucible. You know, it's a mental block and there's something that stops him playing well. I wouldn't put it beyond him to overcome it, but I think quite a few times he's struggled in, at the Crucible, you know, since he won it for the last time. The, the match where he lost to Selby when he was looking to win it three times in a row and he led and he had a chance to win, I don't think he's been the same player at that venue since. Maybe the tournament doesn't suit him, but I tell you what, for someone who doesn't really like the world title, the world championships, to win five of them, not the worst, is it? But no. um, the short form of the game seems to suit him a little bit better now. Short-term yeah. former. Yeah. Does, the other thing is, there doesn't seem to be any decline, and actually, apart from that, like the world championship and the, the match with Cahill, like the ITV events that you mentioned, the discipline in his game was not there a few years ago. And that, the fact that he's factored that in now and clearly wants to win as well it's not all about you know sometimes he says oh I just want to enjoy it he wants to win of course he does and he puts the work in I mean I don't see him practice but I hear from a lot of players all this about Ronnie not practicing all they ever see him is on the practice table and I mentioned this the other day on, on Eurosport actually one of the events that um, he worked on the shootout for Eurosport and I don't think he was a big fan of the tournament actually didn't play in it for a while but there was there's only three practice tables when the shootout is on two on a stage behind the scenes and one in a, a room where Ronnie probably wouldn't want to go because a lot of people in there um, but on one of the tables really he just commandeered it for the last two days of that probably wasn't entitled to be on there actually because <laughs> he didn't play in the tournament but no one's going to kick him off and he, every time I walked past it he was putting in lots of hard hours either solo practice or with Sonny Akani who feels I don't know he just wants to play Ronnie he wants to learn off him but and then of course he came out and won one of the big events straight after that so you know the fact is those hours those hard hours of practice do go in so you've got the combination of the brilliant player that he is that he's always been and someone that's now putting in the hours as well 
and showing all the discipline. He's not. He doesn't drink. You know, he doesn't. He, he lives oh, cleanly. Yeah, exactly. No, he lives cleanly, doesn't he? Does, he? Yeah, he's he does, clean yeah. living. You know, people like Ronnie are meant to be. Um, you know, if you, if you want to compare him to a George Best genius style of, you know, he doesn't drink or anything. You know, Ronnie. So he's he's not doing anything like that. He's living clean. I remember when he won the English and he beat Karen Wilson in that final yeah. in the hotel him and his friends seven cups of tea after yeah. the final I don't yeah. know what that meant but all it meant is that this guy you know he's living clean yeah. and he's winning snooker matches and he's practising hard and he's not this cult figure anymore he's just a prolific winner yeah and he's, I guess his other claim to greatness is his popularity you know he's brought a lot of people to the sport now I sometimes when we do uh, snooker on Eurosport get tweets from people who actually don't like him and, and don't like what he says and some of the things the way he acts but you can't argue with the arenas being full you know he is I know Judd Trump is world champion and his popularity has gone up because of that but Ronnie is still by far the number one box office attraction yeah I mean I think those people are highly entitled to that view because I've not always enjoyed the things that Ronnie says and I would say that to his face you know but um, I don't I, I think I, I don't think you should be worrying too much about that you know I mean he, I think sometimes he, he says what he thinks and what he feels other players maybe don't do that they're more diplomatic other times he says things to uh, to bring about opinion and provoke sort of some kind of discussion but really on the tables where he's done his talking I mean as I say that a new season has started and you know he's won in Shanghai again he's bossed that tournament and all of the events that he seems to like he seems to just about win I think he's that sort of character. He's quite an extreme character. He has very passionate fans who would defend him whatever he does. He has quite passionate detractors who would probably have a go at him whatever he does. And then there's everyone else in the middle who appreciates his talent. So, okay, so they're the three, as I see them, the three greatest players of all time. You've played them all, of course, and commentated on them all. Um, so, and they're actually very different players in a lot of ways. But of the three, here's the, the, the big question of the night before they throw us out the pub <laughs> who is who is the greatest player of all time well look I, 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 I'm the, Steve is somebody I have a, a huge admiration for probably more than anyone else in the game forever Stephen is I never thought I'd see a better player um, and as I say I, I like to think that Stephen and Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry are someone I would you know, call friends I don't see them a lot I don't speak to them much but I like them and I've known them a long time but to me, Ronnie is the best player of all time. I don't even think it's close. I think I think he's the best player of all time. I think for a while that was just a question of how good he is. But now he's got all that silverware on the board. You know, he may not have quite as many ranking events, you know, as, as Stephen Hendry. But he's got more triple crown events. He's, you know, he, he he doesn't play in everything. He's preserved his game by being around. And I don't know when the story's going to end. And right now, he's still in the top two or three. There's an argument he's still the best player in the world. He's unquestionably the greatest player I've ever seen. You can never say he's the greatest player there'll ever be because you don't know who's going to come along. But for someone to come along and do more than what he's done and, and to be spoken about more than he has and to give such pleasure. When you're commentating on, on Ronnie, you know, there's this buzz. You know, you see things, you see beautiful shots in amongst them. You see just genuine class on the table. You know, and to me, I have to say, Ronnie is, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time. Best, best player I've ever seen by some margin well I agree and I, I think a few years ago people made this argument and maybe it was not, would not be, has been as persuaded then maybe five years ago because Hendry's records they never looked like they would be beaten but one by one Ronnie is beating them I suppose the world title one is one that may not go but yeah you put it all together the fact that he's still going at the very top of the game in his mid 40s 
he's a one-off. You know, he's. Um, I'm sure a lot of players would hope he would retire. It reminds me, like Tony Bennett, the great singer, said of Frank Sinatra. He said, um, he said he's got the sort of voice that comes along once in a lifetime. Why did it have to be mine? <laughs> and, I th- and I think a lot of players would actually think, yeah, Ronnie, you've said you're going to retire. Why don't you retire? I think he's good for a few years yet. Yeah, he keeps himself fit. There's no sign of any decline. He's got discipline in his game. And, you know, he's racking up a lot of titles. I guess people always look at the World Championship, but, you know, seven Masters, seven UKs. You know, these are tough tournaments to win. And he has this aura. Against a lot of players, he's almost like he's won before he's even played them. You can see they, they think, I'm playing Ronnie O'Sullivan. And that is the legacy of, you know, nearly three decades now on the tour. So... Not everyone will agree with what we said, but we're giving it to Ronnie O'Sullivan. Um, thanks, Neil. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we're off for a fight in the car park. <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network.